Radiation is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Once again, everyone, to Evidence for Faith. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a show where we give you the evidence to know that Christianity is true, where we explain benefits of Christianity and perfect happiness. A Skype in call from me and with you there in the studio. So, how are things working on that end? Uh, seems to be okay over here. All how right, are you out sa- there in the wilds of Hamilton? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you're sounding good here, too. Let's see, we've got a lot of on the schedule today. First of all, it's National School Choice Week. So, time for us to try to push the concept of school choice so that it helps impoverished children and children who are stuck in school systems that are failing them. Something to look forward to in the future, maybe. We can get more school choice around the country. Also, Kirk, we have been selected, you and I, to debate the crew from Irreligiosophy. Oh, fun. Yep. So we'll be doing another informal debate. So they decided to select you, uh, since Mike is on sabbatical from the show. So you and I will be doing it. Probably we will have to discuss amongst ourselves when's a good day sometime in, say, a month or so. And then we'll make arrangements with them, and that'll be going on. Okay. So this, this time it's going to be on the reasons for becoming a Christian. So All right. that should be good. Okay. Sounds good. Also coming up is movie night at May's Landing Library, and that is going to be this Monday. So tomorrow night, 6 p.m., for those who are in the local area listening to us on WIBG. It's January 24th, 6 p.m., and it's going to be a documentary called Rediscovering God in America. Now, this is put on by historian and former Speaker of the House of Representatives, Newt Gingrich. So I don't know if you knew he has a Ph.D. in history. I didn't know that. (laughs) He does. He has a Ph.D. in history. He's done history courses in the past, and so this sounds like this is going to be really good. It got great reviews, but it goes over the biblical concepts that the Founding Fathers used to base our government on and talks about the importance of the Judeo-Christian influence on politics and the right to religious liberty, separation of church and state, things like that. I know he's done a lot of personal study on that those subjects. That I, I'm familiar with. Yes. Just didn't know he had a Ph.D. Yep, yep, pretty smart guy. And we should point out that that doesn't stand for phony doctor, right? No, I don't think so. So this will be hosted by the organization Liberty and Prosperity, but I'll be leading the discussion. So I'd love to have everybody come out and listen to that, and we'll have questions and answers afterwards. All right, so that I think is enough of the announcements. We've got some quotes. Quote of the day, again, several quotes of the day. I've been reading, well, rereading Rousseau's social contract, and I've been writing down a few quotes that I thought were important for various reasons. Social contract's not really the greatest book in the world. It did a lot of damage, I think, to Western civilization. But still, Rousseau's a very smart guy, and he has a lot of insights that are valuable to 
those who are politically interested. One of them is this quote that says, as before putting up a large building, the architect surveys and sounds the site to see if it will bear the weight. The wise legislator does not begin by laying down laws good in themselves, but by investigating the fitness of the people for which they are destined to receive them. So just saying that you can't make ideal laws as if you have perfect people. You have to make allowances for the sins and foibles of people. And I think this is reflected in the way the Bible set out the laws for the Israelites in the book of Exodus, allowing for divorce, for one thing, as an example of something that God didn't want people to be involved with, but allowed them to do it anyways. Second quote is, liberty may be gained, but can never be recovered. That should be a message for all of us today. Mm. If we lose, he's basically saying, if we lose this liberty, we will fall into a dictatorship, and you'll never recover from that. So, scary concept, but... Unless you're conquered by somebody else. <laughs> and, and freed, yeah, basically. Right. That's true. Then you can start, then you can start your liberty over again. Right. Uh, here's another quote I thought was good. Usurpers always bring about or select troubles times to get past under cover of public terror, destructive laws, which the people would never adopt in cold blood. The moment chosen is one of the surest means of distinguishing the work of the legislator from that of the tyrant. What do you think of that one? Hmm. Deep stuff. Well, really applicable to today, except that instead of this being used as a warning, this is being used as a path for people to pass the laws that they want to by claiming that we're in real troublous times, so we've got to pass these laws. Right. They take political advantage of uh, hard times to push the ideologies that they want to push. Right. Could I be referring to health care legislation? You could be. You could also be referring to being patted down in the airports. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another example. Yeah. Something else that shows that people will always prefer to trade liberty for safety. So no matter who the people are, if they are not safe, they'll, they would rather trade some of their liberty for safety, which is uh, why we need to maintain religious training so that there are fewer people that you can be a... F right. That also points and, out, and I, I think, think uh, how much our founding fathers, how much they were heroes and unusual people because they actually sacrificed their safety for the cause of liberty, which is why we're here today. Yeah, that's right, because they were willing to sacrifice their safety to right. give us the liberty. But you don't get people that come along very often that are willing to do that. Right. Yeah, there's a terrific, gosh, there's a, I think it's in this movie, Rediscovering God in America, where I believe it's Samuel Adams refers to, he writes to posterity and says, I hope you realize what we gave up and how much we suffered to give you freedom, and I hope you don't trade it away, mm -hmm. or else when I'm in heaven, I'll repent that we ever created this country. <laughs> so it's a terrific quote. That reminds uh, me of see. Ben Franklin, too, when he said uh, that he's given us a republic, and he says, said that, I hope you can keep it. Yep, absolutely right. If we can keep it, and that's the tough part. Right. And this is actually, what's funny is this is brought out in Rousseau's writings about how difficult it is to keep liberty. Okay, let's see. Here's one more quote from Book 3, Chapter 4. It says, It may be added that there is no government subject to civil wars and intestine agitations as democratic or popular government, because there is none which is so strong and continual a tendency to change to another form, or which demands more vigilance and courage for its maintenance as it is. 
Under such a constitution, above all, the citizen should arm himself with strength and constancy and say every day of his life what a virtuous Count Palatin said in the Diet of Poland, were there a people of gods, their government would be democratic. So perfect a government is not for men. Pretty interesting stuff. Mm. Some apropos lessons for today. Even though you know Rousseau, his writings and the social contract and, and other writings really led to the French Revolution. They tried to create an egalitarian instead of a liberty being their first primary cause it was egalitarianism and this was part of the age of enlightenment what was the first thing they did they rolled out the guillotine <laughs> there's your enlightened age of reason for you for everybody that disagrees with us here's your option exactly so while we're on politics i guess i've got one more quote this is from frank beckwith Beckwith is a great guy. He is a philosopher and an expert on church and state policy at Baylor University, I believe it is. And he talks about how some argue that Christian policies should not even be considered because they're quote-unquote religious, right? For example, pro-life policies. You know, secular policies are thought to be more rational, right? So mm -hmm. that's that's the way things are today. But but here's what he has to say about religious liberty. This is about a paragraph long, so bear with me. The very idea of religious liberty springs from a Christian view of human beings that entails religious liberty as a fundamental right that all persons possess. Denominations as different as the Southern Baptist Convention and the Roman Catholic Church embrace this understanding and defend it as a natural outgrowth of Christian principles found in both Scripture and Church history. Sadly, Christians have at times failed to see this insight and to apply it justly to non-Christians under their political authority. For this reason, Christians should enter the public square with an understanding and sensitivity to the concerns of some of our fellow citizens who view certain policy proposals as an attempt to, quote, force Christian religious views on others, close quote. This, of course, is a caricature, but these fellow citizens can hardly be blamed for their reaction given the less than fair and sometimes hysterically conspiratorial portrayal of conservative Christians in the popular media, as well as the sometimes misleading presentation of the virtues and vices of our Christian predecessors in the history of Western civilization. So that is from the book Politics for Christians. Let's see. All right, let's get into a little bit more then on the topic of separation of church and state, since that's covered by the movie, and we'll be talking about it Monday night. Now, that's a nice non-controversial subject to deal with, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because most Americans believe in the separation of church and state, right? I mean, to some degree, them, yes. They yes. will say, yes, they believe in separation of church and, st and state. What they disagree on is how do you apply it? Right. right? What kinds of situations does it apply to? Uh, for instance, since we mentioned that it was... National School Choice Week, should school tax vouchers go to religious schools? Okay, some people would say, no, they shouldn't. That's kind of a, a view of a hard separation. A more moderate separation would say, well, those that money is going to other secular private schools, so why not? Why not be treated fairly? Hmm. That's a tricky question. Well, I go with the moderate view. I don't know about you. There's this whole concept of separation of church and state. I'm not sure that we've addressed it fully in past shows, but it's really, you know, you don't find it in the Constitution. It's really a, a phrase that's become shorthand 
for the principles that are found in the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what the First Amendment actually says, it's very clear that the intent was to only limit Congress, uh, not to limit the states. So it was a binding on Congress that they could not interfere with religious practices, but they also couldn't establish a particular denomination as the federal church, so to speak. Right. Since the early 20th century, though, some starting around 1925 or so, the Supreme Court began applying it to all the governments of the United States, all the all the states, and you know goes all the way down to local city 19- governments, even local yeah, city governments. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's why there's issues about whether you can have a nativity scene. Right, and that's why we have to fight that city by city at this point. <laughs> Exactly right. Exactly right. So this this slogan even was put into the legislation of the Supreme Court by 1947. But I'm sure you know, many people, many of the listeners will know, that it comes from a letter by Thomas Jefferson that he wrote in 1802 to the Danbury Baptists. Mm-hmm. You've heard this before. Yep. And it was about... The fact that Connecticut had as their established religion congregationalism. So their their denomination was congregationalism, and they would actually tax, uh, tax money would actually go to support congregationalism. And so the Danbury Baptists didn't really care for this much and wrote to Thomas Jefferson about it. But one of the really interesting things is at that time when after the shortly after the founding of the of the country at this time it still was assumed that there was a moral standards of the society would not be able to be maintained without the influence of religion so there was a two part it was like a dividing of the powers so that you had the state on one side and you had the church, each carrying out their own realms, right? The role of the government was that it had to protect people's God-given rights, but the role of the church was that it had to shape the moral understanding of the citizens to, to kind of civilize them, to teach the people that their rights come from from God and not from the government, that the government doesn't just by fiat announce today you have rights, because if that were true, then guess what? Tomorrow you don't have rights. Right. Anybody who gives you rights can just as easily turn around and take them away. Exactly. So there was this whole kind of philosophical infrastructure, this view of the way things ought to work that that worked really well together, but it slowly changed over time. Beckwith goes, in his book, Politics for Christians, he goes over, he has a chapter on church and state separation, and he goes over some of how this slowly changed. A lot of it was because of the influx of Catholics coming into the country and the fear that Catholic parochial schools would wind up using government money and so this kind of boosted the idea that church and state ought to be more separate than it was. Then finally you get to 1947, Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black. Are you familiar with the Everson case? Uh, not by name, but I probably am by content. Remind okay. me what it is. <laughs> well, this is where he basically applied this separation of church and state, and he refers to Thomas Jefferson's letter and says that, you know, the purpose of the First Amendment is to build a wall of separation. Okay. So he was the first one to really jump on that idea and kind of take it even farther than Jefferson really intended it to. Exactly. And part of the reason is because Hugo Black had been 
a member of the KKK. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, extremely anti-Catholic. Right. And the Catholics, when it came to his appointment, they were, you know, really condemning of, the, of his prior KKK membership. So this was basically payback's time. So he decided to completely squash as much as possible their influence in, in government. Hmm. So that's how we get the hard separation of church and state. Right. So again, you know, moderate ch- separation versus hard separation. And, you know, then you have to think, okay, well, how does that apply to free exercise? Right? Are there limits to free exercise? Can you do whatever you want because you're a church or you're a religion? You know, what about polygamy? Right? That was a big issue with the Mormons. Right. What about Sharia law if you want issues that are coming up today? Yeah. That's relevant, Should, isn't it, to what's going right. on in the world today? Should Sharia law be allowed because it's a free exercise clause? Right? It's their it's their religion, right? Right. Well, there have been sporadic cases in the past, too, where they've had things like uh, people coming forth and saying, well, you know, killing chickens and dogs and stuff is part of my religion. I should be free to do that. Right, or smoking and, peyote or something. Right. So, so we've dealt with these controversies before in smaller, smaller ways. That's right. And in the past, the, the way that the that the court has made its decision is that as long as the state is able to prove that it has a compelling interest in abridging the people's free exercise, then it can go ahead and squash some kind of activity like polygamy and, you know, and, killing and that's what's animals been used in the past. Yeah. Right. But nowadays it's, it's the opposite. It's if there's any influence at all on religion, it's not allowed. So the state essentially doesn't have to prove that it's got a compelling interest. It can just sep- simply say, oh, this is a violation, right? You, you can't put up a nativity scene. So, right. And yet, now, now they act like all uh, aspects of religion have to be forbidden. Instead of taking each situation one at a time and evaluating it, they just say, well, this is religious. It's not allowed. Right. Yeah, exactly right. So let me give a final quote here out of Politics for Christians on this topic. This is pretty good. On the other hand, Christians should also be careful not to marginalize the voices of non-Christians and thus commit the same harm as secularists have committed against Christians. If Christians in a liberal democracy believe in religious liberty and religious disestablishment, they must be conscientious in making sure that the liberties they want to enjoy are extended equitably to all citizens, even those who do not share their faith. Mm-hmm. So, very good. So, that's that on politics and religion. We've got a commercial from Peter voice who is doing some teaching so if our sound engineer Josh Henning is ready we'll go ahead and play our commercial we must pass on the legacy of liberty to our children and grandchildren god forbid they should ever ask what was it like to grow up in freedom former congressional candidate peter boyce is conducting a free 12-week course restoring the foundations of the constitution by the institute on the constitution you'll learn to apply the principles in the constitution to today's critical issues and pending legislation the course is free but does require a one-time $30 expense for the 262-page student manual. Classes are in three counties, one evening a week, 7 to 8.30. Cumberland on Mondays at Ferreton Christian Center in Ferreton. Gloucester on Thursdays at Trinity United Methodist in Mullica Hill. Salem on Fridays at First Assembly of God in Pinsville. Classes are open to people of all faiths and political opinions who are committed to freedom for future generations. To register, call Brenda at 856 Please call 856-451-3747. All right. If you're just joining us, 
You're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I didn't hear that, but maybe Kirk Hastings said something. I'm Kirk Hastings. <laughs> little technical go. difficulty in the studio here. Oh, okay. I'm here. So, I'm really, I'm here. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. We are sponsored in part by Grace Community Church of Waterford Works. You can check us out at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. We have podcasts of all our previous shows. Or if you want to email us, we get tons of emails. Email us at evidenceforfaith.com. So email at evidenceforfaith.com. All right, Kirk, last week we covered some more of the debate we had with the two atheists, Chuck and Layton. And we talked about the second law of thermodynamics. We showed how all systems, any heat system, physical system, chemical system, even information systems must break down over time. Mm -hmm. A very big argument against evolution, which appears to violate that law. But going on from there... We, this was towards the end of the debate, and what happened was there was a series of comments that got passed over. There, for one thing, there was some microphone problems that interrupted things, and then we were trying to get to the topic. Even though we were running out of time, we were still trying to get to the topic that we'd agreed on. We had originally agreed with them to cover two topics. We wanted to cover the arguments for and against the existence of God, and they also wanted to cover the Exodus, whether the Exodus had ever actually occurred. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mike and I both figured that, well, we're, you know, it's going to be tough enough just doing one topic. I, I doubt we'll be able to get to a second topic. So we asked them if they'd be willing to change the discussion and only talk about the first topic, and they agreed to that. And still, we didn't make it. We still, I think there's a, a place in the comment, in the tape, if you listen to it, where it says, okay, we've got three minutes left. Shall we get to the first argument? <laughs> right. Like the long argument. Right. So, so we, uh, we basically were following rabbit trails, and, and some of them we just chose to, to bypass. One of the things was Chuck said that, we don't know how life began. It doesn't necessitate a creator. And then Leighton jumped in and said, yeah, why do theists instantly jump to God instead of looking for explanations? Okay, so Dr. Mike started to tackle that where he talked about how the gap of information for atheists is actually getting bigger. The more we find out, it's not that there's a gap of knowledge. It's because the more we find out, the more it obviously points to an intelligent designer. And that's why we, you know, quote-unquote, jump to God. So then there was a problem with Chuck's microphone. That interrupted things. And when he came back on, he talked about how Hume had gotten rid of the design argument. And we didn't get into what that explanation was, but I do know what he was talking about. Hume basically said that you, you can't use an analogy that design, the design argument from life is an analogy. You can't go from a creator of life like you would say there's a painting, okay, it must have had a creator, or there's a watchmaker, okay, there, or, I'm sorry, there's a watch, therefore there must be a watchmaker, and you can't go that way because the, for an analogy to work, the two things have to be fairly comparable. And if you're going from a watchmaker or a painter to an infinite God who's immaterial and all-powerful, that those things are just too different. So an analogy in that case wouldn't really work. So that's what he was referring to as Hume had, you know, quote-unquote, uh, gotten rid of the design argument. Well, the problem is that that really doesn't work. There, there's, 
even a book by a secular philosopher by the name of Ehrman. And the title of the book is Hume's Ab- Abject Failure. Hmm. So, you know, it's it's not at all clear that he was able to get rid of the that argument. And besides that, the idea of a intelligent creator creating life because of the because of what we can see in in design is actually not an analogy that's it's not the analogy that we're using it's an inference to the best explanation even if analog the analogy argument was a refutation that's not the case we're not using it as an analogy we're using it as we're arguing inference to the best explanation that minds are the only things that can create information. Information comes from minds, and therefore, that's an inference to the best expl- explanation. Mm-hmm. And really, so evolutionists next- often do the same thing when they they frequently make statements like, "Well, creation doesn't make any sense because if if God created things, He wouldn't have done it that way." Isn't that really kind of using the same kind of argument? Only in oh, reverse. Because, oh, as an analogy, you mean? As, as a proof of evolution. They say, well, it must have evolved by this, that, or the other means, because if God had done it, he wouldn't have done it that way. Well, yeah, they certainly do that. I, I agree they certainly do that. Which really uh, is a religious yeah. argument, not a scientific argument, but they often use go. it anyway. Yes, that's true. Yep, it's a, here's... Here's the God that I think of. He's like this, and he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do X, Y, and Z. Therefore, he didn't do it, so it must have been a natural, by natural means. Right. Okay. But well, the point I'm trying to make is, is if we try to use that kind of an argument and say, well, yes, God would have done it that way, then they disallow that. They say, oh, you can't do that. That's a religious argument. That's not a scientific argument. But then right, they turn right. around and they use re- religious arguments too to say that oh God, if He existed, wouldn't do it that way. Yes, exactly right. In fact, there's a book about this written by a secular author called uh, Darwin's God, where he talks about how Darwin's theology influenced his theory. Yes, I've read that book. Very interesting. All right. So next in the debate, there were three statements that went by rapidly in quick succession. And we basically ignored them all to try to get to the topic at hand because we were quickly running out of time. So maybe we can discuss some of those. Uh, Leighton brought up the idea of life being like a lottery, okay? And he says, oh, I won the lottery. Look at the odds, okay? So arguing that, and you've heard this argument, I'm sure, before, that, well, life is so unlikely that it didn't happen. So compare that to a lottery. Okay, well, you buy a lottery ticket, you've got, say, one in six million chance of winning. Right. What happens if you actually win? You stare at it and you say, oh, I couldn't have won. The odds say I couldn't have won. <laughs> right, so I must not have won. <laughs> okay. So you think that's a valid argument? No, Are they right? not really. For one thing, the first thing that comes to my mind is somebody has to win it. Since it's yes. set up to have a winner in the beginning, somebody has to be the winner. The, right. Well, now if you're trying be, to pin down you could have, if you you're trying to pin no down winner. which one of those 6 million people is going to be the winner, yeah, then the odds are really hard to figure out. But if you're if, trying to determine if there's going to be a winner or not, then the odds are 100% there's going to be a winner somewhere. You just don't know who it is. Well, assuming, yes, that in a lottery where every single type of ticket was bought so that all the bases were covered, then you would have a winner. I mean, but some lotteries, obviously, they no one wins, so the amount is increased for the next time. So that there can be a lottery yeah, that's where true. no one wins. But those, there's going to be an eventual winner, let's put it that way. Exactly Somebody's going right. to get the pot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Really, what the what getting life is like is like if the guy who's pulling the balls out of the machine if he's the winner it's it's not that just somebody wins it's if a, a particular person wins 
That's right. the that's the strange odds, because all of the other, you know, life life scenarios are not they're life prohibiting. You don't get life. There's only one way that the numbers, the little ping pong balls, have to come out of the machine, and then you get life. Right. That's the incredible thing. So the incredible thing would be if the guy who's pulling the numbers out. If he's got a ticket, and guess what? It just happens to be that he's the winner. But he's the guy that was reaching his hand down and pulling the balls out. Right. Um, everyone would immediately say, oh, Jip. foul. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that didn't happen by chance. The guy actually manipulated the balls, and he's the, that's how come he won. Sure. I would say so, that. So <laughs> uh, it's not like a lottery. All right, so then. So that's then a bad analogy, that, too, then. Right. So then, as soon as he had said that, he went on quickly to say that there's quite a few step-by-step evolutionary processes that have been shown. So Dr. Mike jumped in and said, show me one. Okay. Then Chuck jumped in, and I guess, you know, I don't know, maybe to rescue Leighton, I don't know. But anyways, he said, you guys say that there are you guys always say that there are no beneficial mutations. Okay? I don't know if you remember that part in the debate. And in reality, we don't say that there are no beneficial mutations. In fact, Mike and I had on previous podcasts covered uh, beneficial mutations. So, but I thought we'd do that a little more in depth today and go over benef- beneficial mutations. So, Kirk, if you can start us off on this topic, we'll jump into that while we have the remaining time. Well, it's funny. uh, Something I was just reading on the internet this afternoon addressed that question, and it made the point that there is no such thing at this point in time as a completely beneficial mutation. They have discovered some mutations that are beneficial in one way, but not beneficial in another. But Where where do you find this? Uh, an internet article that I was reading. I don't have the source right in front of me, but um, it was probably on the Institute for Creation Research website because that was the Mm -hmm. main site that I was looking at. And it happened to mention that they have never discovered a mutation that was 100% beneficial. Mm -hmm. There are mutations that are partially beneficial, but also have a downside. So I just thought I would bring that up. Well, let's go into more detail on that then. Evolutionists are saying, oh, there's all these beneficial mutations out there. This is proof of evolution. Right. And why don't you religious people just accept the fact that evolution has been proved? Well, here's a little interesting story that I also got off the same site. Uh, It's a news article from 2005. And the title of the article is Gene Mutation Makes Tot Stronger. This is really interesting. Yeah, it yeah says, I heard about this. Yes. Uh, it says, uh, at the time this was written in 2005, it says, almost seven years ago, a baby was born in Berlin, Germany, with bulging thighs and biceps that were credited to a unique beneficial genetic event. You may remember seeing this on TV or reading about it in the newspaper. Um, this, yeah. This baby was had the muscles of a weightlifter when he was born right and uh of course that uh brought about a lot of debate about uh, just how beneficial is this and what implications does this have for evolution is this an example of for instance a superior human being born with bigger muscles right well if I were an evolutionist, I would certainly jump on this and say, hey, this is a good example of evolution in action. Here's a beneficial mutation. This kid is going to be able to pass this on to future generations. And who knows, you know, in a few centuries or maybe a thousand years, every human being is going to be really strong like this. Well, that was one of the questions they asked at the time. They said, one of the uh, scientists looking into this said, is there any reason to think that after many generations, the progeny of this particular muscular child will produce a new species of of person with larger muscles? Mm -hmm. And his answer was no. 
He said that his children, if he lives to bear any, may be more muscular, but then again, maybe not. Okay. Well, before we get into uh, these precise details of prob- possible problems, um, did it say anything about what exactly was going on? I mean, what exactly is the the change? The the way when I first heard it on the news, it sounded to me like they were saying that the kid had twice as many muscles, like instead of, you know, one bicep, that he had a pair of biceps, and that this was true for all of his muscles, but it's from what you're describing, it doesn't sound like that's exactly what was going on. No, my understanding of the story was it was only his thigh muscles and his bicep muscles that seemed to be uh, abnormally developed. It was not not every muscle in his body or whatever, it was just certain muscles. All right. So what was the issue? They're just bigger? Is there two of them or they're just bigger than normal or what? Uh, well, they were more developed. Um, this kid was actually at a very young age was able to lift extremely heavy weights. So it wasn't just appearance. He was actually stronger than the average. I want to say stronger than the average bear, but <laughs> okay, so stronger so, than the average human. Right. So it so wasn't just guess, appearance. He was actually had stronger muscles than the normal person would have at that age. Okay. And they don't know why that is? Uh, not yet. Uh, they're saying that the child had a mutation in the gene that produces a protein called myostatin. Oh, okay. Um, now, the downside of this is that even though this caused him to have these larger muscles in these particular parts of his body. It says here that some researchers are concerned that the child's heart muscle could be damaged in the future by an abnormal amount of this protein also. So even though at this young age, his cardiovascular system still appears to be normal, the odds that he's going to have problems down the road are also greatly accelerated by the, uh, the increase in this protein. So it's not all beneficial. Okay, so it sounds like then it must have been a mutation in one of the regulatory genes so that one of the genes that would tell the gene that makes the myostatin to turn on and to you know, produce this protein. To produce more like, of it than is normal. Yeah, so either, muscle, either, that, muscle growth. either that gene was, that regulatory gene is turned on more than usual or... There's often a balance between uh, a regulatory gene that says make some of this stuff and a counter regulatory gene that says stop making some of that stuff. So it could be that the gene that tells the myostatin production to shut off, that gene could have become damaged. Yes. In in which case, uh, he it doesn't have the when in in development he doesn't have the ability to turn off that protein and he makes he makes a bunch of it right it's real interesting I saw a video of this kid and I think it was from when he was about four years old of him at home and the kinds of things that he could do and it was really quite amazing he could you know he's just a tiny little kid smaller than a kitchen uh, countertop and he could reach up to the kitchen countertop put his hands up there and pull himself entire bodily up on top of the counter. Right. It was an amazing thing. It was like, oh, you know, I've never seen a kid be able to do that before. He could do pull-ups at that age. Yeah. So pretty interesting. So what are the problems then? What's what's the issue? Is this does this prove that evolution macroevolution is is occurring? Well, here's the question that was asked at the time. The question is, is the evolutionary idea that beneficial mutations such as this, that appear beneficial on the surface at least, could they somehow work their way in transforming one kind of animal or plant or person into another? Is that scientifically valid, that idea? In other words, could this lead to a new improved human in the future being born from the progeny of this child? One scientist, his response was, well, I would say that the chances of this are very small because he would say what we're talking about here is similar to if you poked a screwdriver into the guts of your computer and that improved its performance. In other words, this one gene mutation 
creating something that might end up being passed on to future generations and becoming an improvement uh, is actually quite small. Well, it seems like you've got a case of it, though, right? You've got this one kid, so here's a case of it. It looks like it worked. So Isn't far, that a good thing? Now, I would say, according to this article, I'm trying to do the math here. This was written in 2005. It says almost seven years ago, so that would make him born about 1998. So that would make him about 13 years old now. Wow. It would be interesting to see uh, what uh, his situation is now. I haven't really heard anything recently about this. I'll have to see if I can find a current update on what the uh, what this child's uh, physical development has been since then and if he's developed any other problems since then because of this increase in this particular protein. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things about genetics is that you change one gene and it affects all kinds of other areas because the body is an incredibly integrated system. This affects maybe his strength in a positive way, but it can also affect other things like could be mental ability or could be stamina or could be eyesight. He might have really bad eyesight. The thing that this really reminds me of is the uh, the guys that you see in the Ripley's Believe It or Not books. The, the Like at the time, they're the tallest man in the world or the heaviest man in the world or whatever. Um, these guys, especially these guys that are like seven, eight, I think there was one that was close to nine feet tall um, because they had a similar situation where they were born with some kind of genetic uh, abnormality that caused them to grow really fast. Right, but maybe giantism the, or something. Right. But these guys end up developing all kinds of other physical problems during their lives. They have back problems, you know, they have, uh, they, oh, they're yeah. susceptible to certain diseases, they can't move very well. There's all kinds of other uh, oh, negative aspects of the giantism. Yeah, I know. There, I, I actually ran into the, the actor who played Jaws, in uh, yeah. the James Bond movie, that guy, yes, Richard Keel, obviously, and he got on elevator uh, with me in Las Vegas, and he was in a wheelchair, all crump, crippled up. Really, you know, he oh, he looked horrible. You know, it was really sad to see him oh, in that wow. condition. Yeah. Okay, so well, you know, we're running short of time. So basically, what we're saying is that. Even though this is beneficial, it's due to the destruction of some kind of regulatory genetic information. Yeah. And this is the same with every example that the evolutionists give of beneficial mutations. So let's do some more quickly. Let's, let's run through some more beneficial, so-called beneficial mutations. How about the one that I think that Chuck mentioned it in the debate, how human beings in Africa have developed the ability to resist malaria. Malaria? You're talking about the sickle cell anemia situation. Exactly right. See, that's a beneficial mutation, right? It sounds like it, doesn't it? Well, you have to get sickle cell anemia in order to get the benefit. Is that really Ooh, overall beneficial? <laughs> that doesn't sound so good. Especially since you end up dying from the sickle cell anemia. I wouldn't necessarily call that a benefit in the end. Right. What's the issue there? Why? What's going on with that mutation? Well, one of the issues is that a mutation like this that causes a positive result, such as the resistance to malaria, like we're talking about here, these positive mutations, if we could call them that, are extremely rare. The overwhelming majority of mutations are negative and end up either severely crippling the individual that has them or killing them. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's also, there's, there's no guarantee whatsoever that a trait like this is going to be passed on to any of the children. Isn't there? I thought that their children would have the, thought that that was one of the benefits, is that it does pass on to the children. Not necessarily. Uh, in most cases, from the information I have here, in most cases it doesn't. Okay, well I guess if you have one allele in the genome, yeah, then 
there would be it would be a recessive because it's damaged probably it would wind up being a recessive gene so that's probably true but then there'd be certain cases where both parents have the recessive gene and they would pass it on and then that child would have both alleles would be the sickle cell gene so what happens there they get sickle cell anemia obviously I'd say they're going to be much worse off than either one of their parents. Oh, sure. Well, that's that's kind of like saying, you know, do you want to catch a disease in order to get a resistance to whatever? It's like, right. okay, what good is the resistance to, for instance, malaria going to do me if I'm suffering from sickle cell anemia and it's going to kill me? Is that right. a positive mutation? Uh, I wouldn't call that. No, I guess o- only if you're li- living in a malarial-infested uh, area, then you're better off than being dead, I guess. And of All course, right, so what, let's do another one. What about one of the other ones? Well, one of the ones I hear a lot is the uh, certain pests that infect farm fields, crops in on farm fields, that yep. they spray them with a certain type of pesticide, mm-hmm. and at some point they quote-unquote, evolve a resistance to that pesticide. All right. And so while it appears that it's beneficial, what's actually happening is that they're losing some genetic information. Typically, it's some kind of the poison that, or antibiotic in the case of bacterial immunity, is that the poison is taking advantage of some molecular machine inside the cells of the affected organism and if that organism then has a mutation that stops that machine from working the poison can no longer kill the organism so quote unquote they get resistance and it's true resistance I mean you know but it's not an increase in information it'd be like if you're in a war and you're being attacked and one way to defend yourself is to blow up the bridge in front of you, then it works. That's a good example. Well, keep going. So, okay. One of the other things that we have to deal with here is the only way for organisms to acquire new, you know, DNA that's different from other than what they inherited from their parents is for their DNA to change or mutate. If the DNA doesn't change, then that living thing is not going to change regardless of how much time passes. So in other words, the child that we were talking about with the, the strong arms and legs, if his DNA hasn't changed, then he's not going to be able to pass that trait on to his children. Right. It has to be part of the germ line. Well, right. Kirk, thanks for the great information. We're going to have to end it there. We don't have our music because of the way we're doing the sound today. Just want to thank everybody for listening. Join us again next Sunday, 4 p.m.